Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, good afternoon and welcome again. Um, if you're uh, newish, I know there's a couple of you who have started uh, attending, uh, visiting our church, checking it out for the first time in the last few weeks. Uh, you may have seen me up here. Again, my name is Chris. I'm the founding pastor here at King's Cross. Uh, I'm normally the one who uh, gets to, to teach and, and preach from up here, but over the last four weeks, uh, I've been uh, just privileged to uh, sit with you and enjoy hearing uh, some of our own uh, team members like Brian and Oscar and uh, some of uh, our, our friends uh, within the Acts 29 network, our church planting network, uh, so that I could have just a few weeks to, to rest and to pray and to, and to plan for uh, the weeks and months ahead. And uh, it's just been a joy. Uh, to sit and receive uh, the Word of God with, with you guys, but I'm stoked and excited uh, to be back here this afternoon with you. And uh, with coming back and diving uh, back behind this pulpit, uh, that brings us back into the book of Revelation, which we started a couple months ago here at King's Cross. Uh, and in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, we're calling it sort of the subtitle is the victory of Christ in his church, right? The victory of Christ in his church, because what we're saying is that ultimately that's what the book of Revelation is about, right? It's, it's not ultimately about end times. It's not ultimately about like charts and graphs and, and, and this way of interpreting things versus that way of interpreting things. It's not about these weird conspiracy theories about when Jesus is going to come back like two weeks from now, right? It's ultimately about the victory of Christ and his church. And the very word revelation means, as we've said, unveiling. That's what it means to be a revelation. It is an un unveiling, sort of a, a peeling back of what's hidden. And the idea is that revelation ultimately teaches not just about what's to come, but about truths that minister to us right here and right now. Truths and spiritual realities that are going on behind the scenes, whether we see them and acknowledge them or not. 
Ultimately, the truth is that Christ is victorious, and his people are victorious. And this, this letter, this book of Revelation was written to a people who were suffering, who were going through a hard time. And as we've said, if we want to understand what the book of Revelation means for us today, then we need to understand first what it meant to them in their day. All right? And look, people in the ancient Near East, first century church weren't having debates on whether Pfizer and Moderna were the mark of the beast, right? And so it is a misinterpretation of Scripture, and it is um, an insult to the early church to assume that things in the book of Revelation mean something to us today that could have never meant for them in their day. And what we saw in the very first chapter of Revelation is that the man writing the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, uh, uh, sees Jesus in a vision. He sees the risen Jesus, the victorious Jesus, the unveiled Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. And what John sees is that Jesus is a man, a priest, a king, a force that is not to be reckoned with. And John just faints over because he's so overwhelmed by the sheer sight and power of the risen and unveiled Jesus. And what happens is that he, he sees Jesus in this, in this vision. Uh, and Jesus comes up to him and approaches him after he faints. He puts his hand on John and says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. I have a message for you. And I have a message for the churches in this area that I want to deliver to them through you. And that's where we left off at the end of Revelation chapter 1. And so now, as we go into Revelation 2, what we're going to see is uh, this collection of personal letters. In Revelation 2 and 3, it's a collection of seven letters that Jesus is addressing to seven different churches in the first century. And in reading these letters, we'll see that there's a lot that he writes to them that we need to hear today. One pastor said that reading Revelation 2 and 3 is almost like reading someone else's mail. Jesus is writing these letters to these churches, and it's almost like you intercepted that mail, and you you get to read it to see what Jesus would say to these churches. And a question that I want us to be asking ourselves as a local church, a question that I want in a healthy way to um, almost like haunt our church, as we're reading these letters, I want us to ask, man, what would Jesus have to say to our church? What would Jesus have to say to King's Cross Church? What is he pleased with and what is he not pleased with? To make it more personal, I think a challenging thing for you to do is is to ask as we go through these letters, what would Jesus say about my life? 
what would he be pleased with? What would he not be pleased with when he looks at and addresses my own life? What I've seen is I've been preparing uh, for uh, preaching these seven letters is that they're convicting. They're convicting, they're challenging, and they're powerful. They're very personally powerful. They have the power to change <coughs> your thoughts, your attitudes, your behavior, change them for the glory of God and the good of others. I found them personally powerful in my own life, and my prayer is that over the next several sermons, you'll see that these are powerful in your life too, that these are powerful in our church too, and I think it's safe to assume, excuse me, I think it's safe to assume that Satan doesn't want us to heed anything from these letters. He doesn't want us to learn anything profitable for us from these letters. And so I want us to be attentive. I want us to be honest with ourselves. I want us as a church to be honest about this church recognizing that although our enemy might, seem, might seek to, to thwart and diminish what God wants to do in and through us, Jesus is victorious, and so is his church. And so with that, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I pray this afternoon just the same prayer that I've been praying again and again throughout this week that I'm grateful to you, Lord, for just the timely message in these two chapters that we'll be in over the next several weeks. And I also pray, Lord, that you would prepare and soften and humble our hearts and our minds to receive what you might have to say to us over the next several weeks, beginning with right now. Lord, your word is true. It is good, powerful, and profitable for us. We believe that. And so would you just have your way in us through these words that you've preserved. In Christ's name, I pray, amen. Let's dive right on with Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse one. Jesus is speaking again to John. He says, hey, John, write these letters down. Here's the first letter. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, really quick, when we see that word angel, depending on what translation you're looking at in front of you uh, in your Bible or uh, uh, on the scriptures on your phone, the, 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 the word there for angel might be translated messenger. And that's because that is a common uh, word. The original Greek word could be translated angel or messenger. And uh, the reason that it says angel here for the messenger of the church is to point out and highlight that this is a special messenger office in the church of Ephesus. So now what does that mean? It means that when, he, when, when, when Jesus tells John to write this to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, that's his way of saying, hey, write this to the pastor, whoever's presiding over the church in Ephesus, all right? So to the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus that 
place Ephesus you might be familiar with from uh, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. It's the same church. (coughs) Jesus says, (coughs) write these words. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So right here in verse one, Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus and he starts by introducing himself. He's saying, hey, look, these words are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Now, what does that mean? Who is this talking about? If you remember from Revelation chapter one, this describes exactly the vision that John saw of Jesus. So who is this? This is Jesus. Who are the seven stars in his right hand? Those are the messengers, the pastors of the churches. And so Jesus is almost uh, saying, hey, look, you pastors, you leaders of the church, recognize that it's not about you. I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who keeps you. I'm the one who has you. You're appointed there. You're a messenger there because of me. And so Jesus is saying, look, this is, I'm the one who holds the seven stars, the seven messengers in my right hand. And it says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what are the lampstands? If you remember, again, from Revelation chapter 1, that the lampstands are a symbol of the churches. In Revelation chapter 1, he talks about seven golden lampstands, and then uh, Jesus just straight up says, he says, the lampstands are the churches, and he starts listing the, the names of the seven churches. Now, there's a key point that I don't want us to miss when we read that Jesus walks among the lampstands, and it's this, that Jesus is not far away. He's not far away. He is with us. He's especially with us in the gathering of the church. You see, the picture of Jesus that we have here, the unveiled glorious Jesus, is that he's not like far away, sitting on a cloud, sipping on holy wine while cherubim play all these harps and flutes flying all around him. No, he's the risen king, the one who reigns. He's the high priest, the one who intercedes on behalf of his people. And through the Holy Spirit, he's also present with us. He walks among the churches. <clears throat> he walks among the lampstands. He's with us in the fullest sense of that word, especially when we gather as a church family like we're doing right now. Now, you might think... You might think like, man, like I had a hard week. This was a rough week and no one here really knows what I went through. No one here knows what my week was like. It might be that no one here knows what you're going through in just this season of, just general season of life. Not just this last week, but this general season of life. I know that most of you don't know about my week and how many different things got thwarted and how distracted I was. But for all of us, we can find comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ is with us. He walks among us. 
He's present among the churches. And then he starts speaking directly to the Ephesian church. Look what he says. He says a lot of great things in these next two verses. Verse two, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are patiently, or sorry, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, doesn't that sound like an amazing church? Right? Like you read these things and you're like, man, I wish Jesus would say that about our church. I wish Jesus would say that about my life. He says, he starts, he says, I know your works. He knows of their works. He knows of all the ministry that they've done. He knows about the mission that they've accomplished. He says, look, I know you. I know what you're about. He says, I know your toil. Your toil, that's just a word for hard work. Right? He says to this church, like, I know that you're not slacking. I know that you're tired sometimes, but yet you still try to help. You still try to serve. You're still trying to help others. You care for one another. And Jesus loves this about them. You see, the Bible teaches that when Christ ascended and on high and when the Holy Spirit came down, that gifts were given to all the people in, in the church to make sure that the church grows in a healthy way as the body, uh, a meta, which is a metaphor for, for the church, just serves one another. Different members, different parts of the same body serving one another. And look, this is one of the things that I love about being part of a new church family like King's Cross. One of the things I love about church planting is that we have this, we can see it as this unique opportunity because of our size and because of how fresh things are here. We have this unique opportunity as a small group of people that are united by one common mission to develop sort of this all-hands-on-deck sort of culture. Because somewhere along the lines, we in the Western church have bought into this false notion that, that ministry is only done by those who are up behind a pulpit, by those who have a title or a role, that the only ones that should have respect and responsibility are those with a title or role and that to have any influence and to make disciples or to counsel others that you need a title and a role and a job description. But the Bible deconstructs time and time again that way of thinking and says that, no, it's every saint, every church member, Every Christian that is gifted by God for meaningful ministry, every single one of us, not one person gets skipped over. A few months ago, um, my, uh, I had like big patches of grass on my front lawn that uh, were dying because um, one, uh, 
I can get kind of lazy. <laughs> Two, it's really hot right now. Uh, and three, we had like rabbits in our front lawn like all the time. And so not only were, uh, was the, the heat like killing our grass, but then we had like huge patches that just started disappearing uh, because like all of these rabbits would come in and start eating at our grass. Um, and uh, then mushrooms would start popping up because if you know anything about rabbits, like their, their poop makes mushrooms. Um, learned that this year, right? And so uh, I just, the mushrooms were like taking over, and the reason that things were in such bad shape is because, man, my grass lacked the nutrients that I needed. And one day I was just like, hey, I need to take care of this, right? I need to take care of this because, one, I want my home to look hospitable. I also want my neighbors to like us and not hate us. And so I, I, I decided I'm going to reseed those dry patches, which, again, is really hard to grow grass in the summer. Like if you buy a bag of grass, which I did, um, like seed, uh, it tells you like the best time to do it uh, is like right after the winter um, or right before the winter, like in the fall or the early spring. Um, but in the summer, it's hard to grow grass because you've got to constantly hydrate it, right? Like no living thing is going to grow or thrive without the help that it needs, without the water and the sun and the nutrients and the oxygen. And so in the summer, if you're going to try and gr grow grass, like everyone, like all the reviews will tell you uh, on Amazon like, or at Lowe's, like, they, like you will fail at doing this in the summer. Like it is not going to work. You should wait until the fall. But if you hose it down constantly, like you might have a chance. If you don't hose it down constantly, it'll never grow. It'll keep withering. Happy to tell you I have a lawn full of green grass right now. <laughs> That's because, man, I watered that thing. Like our, our water bill like doubled, <laughs> but we have green grass, yay. <laughs> It needs nutrients to grow and to thrive. And one of the nutrients that we need in the church is the spiritual gifts of the church. Without the work of ministry happening between members with even, man, the unglamorous, like everyone wants to serve where people can see you, right? Even the, the, the roles that nobody ever sees, nobody ever notices, nobody ever gets thanks for, or when you're setting up and, and tearing down, when you're preparing worship throughout the week, when you're serving in security in the back, like, like no one knows here who's strapped and who's not, right? The things that don't ever get acknowledged, without those things, without serving and using our gifts, like you won't spiritually thrive. Jesus knows, even when it goes unseen, even when it goes unacknowledged, he knows the sacrifices that you make and the serving that you do. He knows when you guys have dropped off groceries at the, the, the door of, of somebody in the church that's been going through a really hard time. Many times you do it anonymously. He knows when you're praying for one another throughout the week. He knows about when you've driven across a few towns just to be with somebody who's suffering that the average person here on a Sunday has no idea about. Nobody's applauding you for that. No one's patting your back. No one's seeing the way that you're serving and thinking like, wow, what a great servant. But there are many of you whose faces I'm seeing right now who do that week in and week out. And Jesus says, hey, look, I know the work that you do. 
I know how you endure. He cites their patient endurance as the passage continues. Patient endurance, that just means perseverance. This church served even when it was hard. Again, this is unheard of in Western suburban church cultures today when people only serve when it's like convenient or easy to do. Like once it gets hard, man, I got to quit for a season. Once you're too busy, quit. Once you find things that you'd rather be doing, then you quit. Now, there's a fine line here, right? Because at the same time, we are very intentional. Like we do not want to burn people out. And we think that that's a loving and good thing to do, right? At the same time, we're going to encourage you to use your gifts in the way that God has equipped you to. And when you're serving so much to the point that your time with the Lord, your time in fellowship with others, your personal spiritual vitality is suffering and waning, then that's a problem. This church... They were persevering hard, and Jesus says, I see you. I see the way that you're doing that. And he continues, I see how you cannot bear with those who are evil. This is Jesus pointing out that, you know, when someone says that they're a Christian, but their life shows you otherwise, he's telling them, look, I know that you can't bear that. I know that you don't tolerate it. And look, that's a good thing to say about a church to be known for confronting sin, not, not in like this aggressive, oppressive way, but with truth and love and with grace. This is a church that's more concerned about whether or not their people are faithful than they are about whether or not their people are comfortable. Years ago, I used to serve at a church where uh, the senior pastor behind closed doors, like just among his leaders, behind closed doors, he would like just talk trash on different volunteers. And he would bemoan the character of one of the specific, the specific leaders in the church because of this guy's character. He was often rude. Sometimes he would snap at his wife in, in, in public. Uh, not that it's okay to do in private, but like, like, you know it's bad if you do it out in the open, right? Uh, he would snap at like just all kinds of people. But man, this guy had money and we needed his money. And so let's let him teach Bible studies. Right? Like behind closed doors, he would say, like, we'll never let him do this. We'll never do this because he's got all this stuff going on in his life. But man, let's keep him happy and let him teach Bible studies. Because we need his power and his influence. And Jesus is telling this church, he's like, you guys are not like that. You're not like that. You, you're, you're like me, Jesus says. You love holiness. You won't let people get away with stuff like that. You confront them in truth and in love. It says that this church tested false teachers. He says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Now, this is an important trait for a healthy church and its leaders, to be able to, to discern and tell when a teaching is false. If you remember our, our, our preaching series that we went through the book of Titus, like this is something that we learned like really early on is that like Jesus wants the leaders of his churches and the members of his churches to know when something is being uh, false, like taught 
falsely. If something is being passed as, as truth of God, but really like there's something more sinister going on or it's just flat out wrong. There's a reference to how they've done this. We actually read it a few verses down in verse 6. Look at it. Uh, in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, before you think that that sounds too harsh, let's just, just do a little backstory. It'd be helpful to know who the Nicolaitans uh, are. And we actually read about them in the book of Acts. In Acts, I think it's chapter 6, when we read about the first deacons that were installed uh, in the church to come up and alongside the apostles and help serve the churches, there was one guy named Nicholas. And he seemed to love God. He seemed to, to earnestly love God in the church. But then later on in the book of Acts, we learn that he left the faith and he started teaching things that absolutely contradict the word of God. He started leading people away from salvation rather than to it, away from Jesus rather than to him. And Jesus says here, man, you Ephesians, you saw that and you hated that. You hated that because you knew the damage that that was causing to all these souls. He says you tested those who called themselves apostles. That word apostle basically means someone who is sent out by God. Someone who's sent by God. And so what happened was some people came into the church who were deceptive. They would say things like, hey, God sent me. And he sent me here to deliver this message to you. And this church was mature enough to say to the guy on the platform, like, all right, so you're saying that's what God has to say? Well, 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 you know, like, we'll see about that, right? They didn't just say, like, oh, okay, he's like, so that's what God says? Like, well, we'll just take it because that's what you say. We just receive it because that's what you say. No, Jesus says this church tested them. They tested every single one of their teachers to see, man, do, do the words that the guy up on the stage, the guy behind the pulpit, the guy with the message for us, does the words that he say that are coming from God, do they actually line up with the scriptures? Do they actually line up with the word of God? Now, you've heard me say this before, but it's important, not just to me, but for us as a church family, for the health of our church and future generations of this church, don't just take my word for what I teach. Don't just take our word for our entire team that ever teaches behind this pulpit. Don't take our words for what they are. Read the Bible for yourselves. Read the Bible for yourself. And if what you hear me preaching on Sundays is not in the scriptures, then call me out. Don't let me preach. Get me fired or find another church that is faithful to the word. By the way, calling out false teachers is just another one of those things that just seems so countercultural to us today because we live in a time and in a place where we're told that it doesn't matter what someone believes or it doesn't matter how someone does things. We just got to accept it. For that reason, some people say that this talk about calling out false teachers sounds off-putting narrow-minded. Now, this doesn't mean that you're like walking around like telling everybody how they're wrong and how they're saying things wrong and like doing things wrong. Because it can actually be a compassionate thing when done with grace and love, wisdom and tactfulness. It can be a compassionate thing 
if what we're talking about is like a life or death situation, which is what false teaching is. And Jesus is not okay with that because souls are on the line. The spiritual health of the churches are at stake. And so he says here, look, I can't stand some of the practices of some of these churches, and I love that you're with me on that. I love that you're with me on that because you're not going to let anybody get away with that. You love me too much to let that happen. Verse 3 says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Now, it's helpful to know a little history about specifically the Ephesians church, the church in Ephesus. It was, Ephesus was the biggest city uh, in like this region of the ancient Near East in the first century. And we actually read about the church in Ephesus, about how it started in Acts chapter 19. And we don't have time to read it. But basically, it, it talks about how all the people in Ephesus, what the town was known for was the worship of this idol, this goddess named Diana, all right? And, and all the people in Ephesus wor- worshipped this, this goddess Diana. And what happened is these missionaries and church planners came in and started telling people about Jesus, started praying for people, sharing the gospel with them, and then a church started growing in Ephesus. And that's the church that Jesus is writing to here in our text. And because people started getting saved, like, multiplication was happening. So many people were getting saved. They stopped worshiping idols. They stopped worshiping Diana, and they started worshiping Jesus. And so what happens is they're, they're, they're finding themselves in churches. They're hearing the gospel. They're getting prayed for. They're getting baptized. They're going home, and they're tossing all their idols of Diana, right? Like all their gold statues, all their carved images of Diana, they're like tossing them out. They're saying like, we don't belong to her anymore. We belong to Jesus. And the idol makers, which was like the predominant, predominantly what was driving the economy in Ephesus, these people who would make these carved images of Diana because people would like pilgrimage to Ephesus to worship Diana. So all of these idol makers, they started losing business and they were ticked. And we read that they start a riot in Ephesus to drive the Christians out, to drag them out of town. Now, when Jesus sends this letter to them in Revelation 2, he says, man, I know about what you went through. I know how hard it must have been to hold on to your faith, to continue showing up to serve one another when you felt like you were being threatened by your neighbors like that. He says, I see those hard things you endured, and in all of those things, you never grow weary. Now look, if we stopped there, again, if we stopped there right at the end of verse three, like, we would applaud this church, right? We'd be like, I wanna be like this church. We want to model this church, and we would wanna just like be like them, But then look what Jesus says when he continues in verses four to five. He says, but I have this against you. Uh Uh-oh, what is that? He says that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, after all these great things that he listed in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, this laundry list of awesome things that are worth applauding, Jesus says, I've got just one thing against you. I've got one thing against you, and if you don't change that one thing, if you don't change it, then I'm going to remove you. I'm going to destroy your influence. Your church will cease to exist. That's what he means when he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. And what is the one thing that Jesus says that he cannot do without? It's love. It's love. Genuine love. The one thing missing that Jesus will not do without is love. Your love for me, he says. He tells them, you've walked away from that passionate love that you had at first, that passionate love that you once had for me. Are you doing the right things? Yes, you are. Are you teaching the right things? Yeah, it seems like it. But there's no love. There's no real relationship there anymore. And notice how essential this is to him. He says, without that love, those other things don't really matter that much to me. And I'm going to remove you. That's a powerful statement there. I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus is saying, look, if this does not change, you won't even exist as a church. You need love at the center. And he calls it the love that you had at first. Now, why does he call it that? Because what often happens in the Christian life is that you start off with like this passionate love for God. You feel like you're on this spiritual high every time you come to church, every time you get a text message or phone call from a new Christian brother or sister, you're just all excited and passionate uh, about your love for God and the things of God. And then what happens is that over time, you're like, man, after a while, this gets old. It's not exciting anymore. And you start to walk away from it. Look, Jesus says, look, he's not interested in mere religion. Jesus is not here to make religious people. He doesn't just want you to do a lot of Christian-y things and not do a lot of worldly things, just obeying a bunch of rules. No, he doesn't want you to just have sound doctrine, to be able to pass like a multiple choice test on systematic theology. No, he wants a real relationship. He wants a love relationship with you, with his church. He wants the kind of people that love him, that adore him, that cherish him, like the kind of love that you have for maybe a significant other. People who are grateful for who he is and for what he's done for us on the cross, in our place, for our sins, that we just run to him with open arms and say, thank you. Thank you. I love you. I, you did that for me when I was rebelling against you. You did that for me. 
Now, I want to get away from everything else that distracts me from you. I want to walk away from everything that takes me away from you because I love you so much. Like, that's what Jesus wants from his church. And it's not that he doesn't want us to do holy works. It's that what we do for him should flow out of a heart that wholly and completely just belongs to him and loves him. John Calvin's motto for his life was, Lord, just take my heart, make it yours. Make it yours. That's what Jesus wants. A people who know, like, who just the way that they live and the way that other people like observe them and see them, people know, look, that this is why you pursue holiness, that this is why you do what you do. This is why you serve him and serve other people. It's because Jesus is everything to you. It just flows out of you in service and in works. Jesus says at the end of verse four and the beginning of verse five, read it again. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's like, you guys used to have it. You've abandoned it. Verse five, remember, therefore, recall, therefore, from where you have fallen. He asked them this question. Was there a time in your life where you were more passionately in love with Jesus? He asked us that question this afternoon. Is there a time in your life where you were maybe more passionately in love with Jesus? And he calls this church, and through the preservation of Scripture, he calls us to remember, to recall, and to return to that love. Run back to it, he says. You really get to see what the church cared about, what they were applauded for, but the fact that they were missing love. I think this church was guilty of two common, mis- uh, two common characterizations that we see in many churches, and that can be true of us, King's Cross, if we don't return to that first love. I'm going to call these two characterizations fundamentalism and pragmatism. Fundamentalism and pragmatism. Fundamentalism is when you don't, when you, you don't have like any of the wrong doctrinal statements, you don't have any of the wrong books on your shelf, you don't have any of the wrong teachers in your pulpit. But when you look at the heart, you see that it's gotten calloused and, and hard. It's not loving. When they started, there was a lot of love in this church. They had love for each other, love for its leaders, love for the lost, love for God. But now, all that seems to be fading. And so there are, I think, at least a couple ways. There's probably more than that. But in this text, we see at least a couple ways that I think King's Cross can fall into this fundamentalism. Two ways that we can make the same fundamentalist error as the Ephesians church. Number one is when we start to pit truth against love. We pit truth 
up against love. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Some people think you're either a grace church or you're a truth church, right? And the church that loves grace and shows forgiveness and welcomes all the unlovable people, like they're in that grace camp. And the people who love the Bible are reformed in their theology, are students of the word. They're like in the truth camp. But Jesus is saying, no, I want you to take that good, solid, doctrinal truth, and I want you to wrap it in grace and love like a burrito. Take the meat of solid doctrinal truth and wrap it in grace and love. Don't pit truth and love against each other. They're not at odds. You can't divorce the one from the other. They should go together, again, like a burrito. The other error that we make is when we pit doctrine against devotion. This is when we only concern ourselves with doctrine, like what's white and what's wrong, and we don't engage in spiritual disciplines or like listen to the Holy Spirit. So this happens when you're reading the Bible and you're reading good theology books, you're subscribing to all the podcasts, you're watching all the debates on YouTube, you have all your questions answered about God and life and, and, and Christian living, and your theology is all systematized, but you don't actually meditate and ruminate on those truths. You don't actually pray. You don't fast to grow a greater desire for the Lord. And when it, it's when we get so consumed with our studies, like all this heady stuff, that we forget that no, Jesus isn't just a theological idea. He's a person who's alive. He's the God-man, the risen one, and that he's among us. He dwells with us, and we're supposed to have a relationship with him, like a real relationship, a real love, back-and-forth relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. That's hard stuff. It's not just a head religion, but it also impacts our hearts. Doctrine and devotion. What happens is when we pit the two against each other, our Christianity goes from a relationship that we enjoy to a belief system that we just subscribe to. But the Bible tells us, no, it's both. Again, you don't have to divorce the one from the other. So that's how we might fall into the Ephesian error of fundamentalism. Now, on the other hand, pragmatism is when you do all the right things. So it's not about believing all the right things. It's about doing all the right things. You make all the right sacrifices. But again, when you look at the heart, you see that it's grown calloused, disconnected, maybe even cynical. And here's how you fall into that error. Number one, we start to see Jesus as a means to the good life rather than life itself or the source of life itself. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life in the fullest. And so when we make this error where we see Jesus as the means to the good life rather than the source of life itself, 
This is when over time, Jesus becomes to you this philosophical construct or like a moral example to follow, but he's not a risen Lord that you devote to. And so you still don't talk to him with childlike faith. You don't enjoy time in his presence. He's been reduced to some moral code to live by. A party platform to vote according to. You just try to be a good person. You maybe do some churchy things here and there, and you say, hey, God will bless me because he owes me, right? I did all the things he wanted to, and so now he's going to bless me. Man, that's going to rob you out of love. There's no love relationship that works like that. Second way we can make this error is when we replace what Jesus has done for us with what we think we have to do for him. This happens when you're kind of like always anxious in your religiosity. You're always anxious when you're coming to church or when you're doing Christian things because you wonder if you're ever going to live up to God's standards. You're always worried if you've done enough for him to love you. You're always worried, does God really like me? Does he really love me? This is a heart that says, if I just do more, if I just behave better, then he'll accept me. He's got to accept me. And that's not even close to the gospel. That's the very opposite of the gospel of grace. The gospel says that we are fully, fully and wholly accepted by God's grace and his grace alone. It's not about what you do. It's not about what your efforts or what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. That's the point. Why did he have to live? Why did he have to die on the cross in our place for our sins? It's so that he could be our substitute because apart from him, there is no hope. You can't earn the favor of the Lord, the love of God, the affection of Jesus. Now, does that mean that how we live doesn't matter? No, of course not. Does what we do matter? Yes, it does. But it does not matter as much as, not even close to as much as, to what Jesus has done. It's not even like down here on the scale and what Jesus has done is up here on the scale. No, it's on an entirely different plane. What Jesus has done for you on the cross in your place for your sins, like that's the whole thing. And what you do for him is only pleasing to God when it flows out of that love relationship that you already have with him. When it flows out what, of what he's done for you, just loving Jesus for what he's done for you. God's not interested in, in what we might call mere religion. He's not interested in a kind of religion where, where you just show up, you do the right things, but you've got no real love or affection for him. Give you a quick example. Um, I was thinking about my kids this week. Um, I mean, partly because I live with them. Um, but I was thinking about like just how much I 
love them because they're great kids. They're great kids. Like, they're good kids. They re respect me, generally speaking, right? They're six, four, and two, right? So, you know, use your imagination. It doesn't always work out. But generally, generally speaking, they do what they're told. Not perfectly, but for the most part, it might take time and some teaching and, you know, like some discipline and hard conversations and time out and stuff like that. But for the most part, they respond. They respond to what we've taught them and what we ask them to do. And man, I love that. I appreciate that. But you know what I really love more than that? You know what I really love is that when... When I'm going to leave the house for the day, when I'm about to leave the house for, for the day, for like a, a day full of meetings or something, they'll run down the stairs. They'll hug me around my legs and they'll say, Daddy, we're going to miss you. Have a good day. We love you. And sometimes, if it's a really good day, like as I drive away, they're going to run outside uh, and down the sidewalk and try to keep up with the car as I, I pull down and like I'll... I'll drive as slow as I can just to like milk the whole thing, right? Like as they're, they're running up across the car, like, bye, Dad, have a good day, all the way to the end of the street until I turn around the corner. And then when I, sometimes when I get home and walk back through the door, they'll say, Daddy's home. And then they'll all start running, jump in my lap, and my six-year-old will tell me about how great her day was or how awful her day was. And I love that she just wants to run to me like that. I love those things about being their dad. And that's what Jesus says here in this passage. He says, look, I love that you obey me. I love that you speak well of me. I love that you do the things that I've taught you to do. But more than anything, I just want your love. I want your love. I want you to love me, to run to me, to embrace me to show the world how much you love me. I don't want you to show the world how much you obey me. I want you to show the world how much you love me. To where we're genuinely saying from the heart, like, Jesus, I love you for who you are. I love you for what you've done for me. I'm totally yours. I belong to you wholly and completely. My heart belongs to you. Consecrate it. Make it yours. You know what's hard for me? It's hard for me when I, when I come home and they don't run to me, my kids. They don't always run to me. Sometimes they don't run because they're glued to a screen. Or maybe they're more interested in their friend that's over than they are with me. And I'm not saying that they need to like drop their friend and like come run to my lap and tell them, you know, spend an hour with me, tell me about their day. But like, man, I won't even get a glance sometimes. They're so excited about their friend that's over. And you know what stinks was just challenging and convicting to me this week? That's what, that's what my relationship with God looks like many days. That's what my relationship looks like many days. And I've asked myself, like, man, when was the last time that I came running to him? 
when was the last time that I could have spent time enjoying the Lord, but instead I was glued to a screen, scrolling through Twitter? When was I more excited about the people that I hang out with than I am with the God who knows me more fully, more truly, more deeply than anyone alive? even the most shameful parts of me, and yet he deeply loves me. Sent his son Jesus to die for me. And that convicted me this week. You see, this exhortation from Jesus wasn't just for the first century church. It wasn't just for the church in Ephesus. It's for us, too. I mean, he straight up says that in verse 7. Read this with me. He says, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all of us. And then he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, to the one who overcomes, to the true believer, to the faithful lover of the risen Jesus Christ, he says, I promise you heaven. And why does he say that? He says that because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're in this church in Ephesus being read this message from your pastor, and you're a faithful lover of Jesus. Like, you know genuinely, like, be- honestly, before the Lord, like, cross your heart, hope to die. You know that you truly belong to him, that you love Jesus with all your heart, and you're hearing what Jesus is saying to your church and how he's going to take away your church's lampstand if things don't change. You might be like, oh, man, I'm I'm doomed. <laughs> But Jesus, he closes here and he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's him saying, look, even if, in you, if you find yourself in a church that has left its first love, man, if you love me, if you truly love me, I promise you have it. Do you see the tender heart of Jesus in this passage? That he doesn't want the people in this church to miss the main points. And even if they do continue to miss the main point, he wants the faithful few to know he's got them. It's the tender, pursuing, saving heart of Jesus for his people. He wants to woo his people back. He wants to win their hearts back to him. I love that he comes and he tells the people in this church, I see what you're doing. I see all those things. How you're working hard and you're not giving up and I'm proud of you. I see that. I love you. I'm proud of you. I do see it and I do love you. But in his unveiled authority, the great friend of sinners simply aims just to win their hearts back. Back to him. 
He reminds him that he, Jesus, he has patiently suffered for them. He has patiently endured for them. He has poured out not just his energy, but his very life force, poured out his blood, his life for them, not to be their great moral example, but to be their great savior so that they might enjoy the unveiled, unfiltered presence of God forevermore as his sons and daughters. King's Cross, know that this call back to loving Christ is not just for this church. He aims to win our hearts back this afternoon as well. The very essence of our Christian faith is ultimately not about the things that we do for Jesus, but about the great things that God has done for us in Jesus. And so I'll just close with this question. Do you love him for it? Do you love him for it? If you don't, return to your first love. And if you've never loved him at first, repent, believe, come to him, embrace him, and know that on the other side, you don't have to earn your way in. He just welcomes you into the family by grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.